So in January of 2017, I was, uh, I was in the middle of a fight. Um, I, 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 used to, uh, I used to do judo. Um, it was a number of years ago. I didn't do it for very long, and I was very bad at it. So please don't be impressed by that. Um, I, I had never actually, this was, a, this was a regular sparring partner that I had, and I had never actually beaten him. Um, it's a very, very frustrating thing. And I finally had him. I finally had him. I, I, was, I was going to put him into, into a chokehold, and for the first time, I was going to beat this guy. So I, I wrapped him up, turned really quickly, and then all of a sudden, I heard a pop in my knee. And then I went down, and he was stopped, and he was like, what? You actually had me. And I said, I, I know, but my, my knee didn't have you. Um, so I, I gave my knee a couple of weeks to rest. Um, strength came back to it. It was swollen, but, but it came back. So I thought, eh, not, not a big deal, just a, just a weird glitch. Um, so kind of ignored it, got back into running and then working out and everything, lifting weights, trying to, trying to re-strengthen it. Got back into judo a few months later. Ooh, it went out on me again. Huh. All right, just in time for Mother's Day, so that was a happy Mother's Day for my wife, as I had all sorts of gardening promises that I had made to her. Um, gave it a couple of months again, kind of just tried to rehab it on my own. Um, and so this continued on for about a year, um, where, where I would just occasionally be doing things. I would just occasionally, I, I would, at that point in time, I was a, I was a youth pastor, so, so I, I would be doing things with the youth. We'd be playing broom ball. We would be doing whatever. And then all of a sudden, just occasionally, I would step the wrong way. And it was never when you expected. It was always just like in the most random moments, but you would just step the wrong way, and all of a sudden, my knee would completely give out, collapse, and I would fall to the ground. And it, it was always a little bit embarrassing because, again, it wasn't when you were expecting it. It was, it was like, why did I just fall to the ground? I don't, I don't know why I just fell down. So, so, so I, I made it to about a year mark. Um, I had a big ski vacation coming up. So, uh, and I decided my ACL, after doing some reading online, um, I decided my ACL was probably shot. Um, Obviously, I didn't want to miss my ski vacation. So I went on the ski vacation still and then came back and saw a surgeon and they said, yep, your ACL is gone and you're going to need surgery. Um, you you, you got to fit the ski vacation in before you do something like that, right? I mean, I mean what, what's the worst that's going to happen? You do a little more damage, you're going to have surgery anyway, so why not? Um, I, that, that's not an encouragement for anyone else. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, so I had my surgery done. Had it replaced, um, long healing process and all of that. Very frustrating process. My, uh, my first Sunday preaching here on my candidating sermon, I think was the first, uh, was the first weekend I was off crutches from, uh, from, from recovering from my ACL surgery. So I was, I was a little precarious up here at the time. But all, all, all is good and healthy now with my knee, so, so things are good. But it is amazing. An ACL is such a tiny little thing. It's so small, right? You wouldn't think that it would have that kind of an effect on your whole body. It stabilizes the knee. It braces you. It gives you security. And as soon as it's gone, I mean, seriously, I would just be standing there, and I would just turn, and all of a sudden, that knee would just give out on me, and I'd collapse, 
Again, crazy embarrassing, because you have no idea why. You have no idea what, when to expect it. One of the things that motivated me to actually finally um, get it looked at was the fact that we had just had another baby. We, we had had Asher, um, my, my youngest, and, uh, and I didn't want to accidentally like, collapse while I was carrying him at some point. So, uh, so, so we went and we got it checked out. But such a tiny little thing has such a huge effect on the entirety of your body, on the entirety of your body. And that's, that's true for the body of Christ as well. Each and every one of us who are in the body of Christ plays such a significant role. We play such a significant role. I don't, I don't know that we genuinely believe that oftentimes. I don't know that we genuinely believe that each and every, we, we can say it, we, we say it because it sounds good to say, oh yeah, everyone's important in the body of Christ. But I don't know that we all actually genuinely believe it for a variety of reasons, right? Uh, maybe potentially we just don't know where we fit into the body of Christ. So we don't see how we can play such a significant role. Um, certainly, certainly I, I think many of us demonstrate it just in terms of commitment, right? As we look around at various churches, as we look around at so many Christians who are going to church on Sundays but aren't actually necessarily involved and invested in the body of Christ, they demonstrate what they believe about their actual, about what they actually have to give. This week brings us to a close in our Colossians series. Over the past number of weeks, we've gotten to see Paul hold Christ up for us each week. It was almost as though, it's almost been as though Christ is looking at this beautiful diamond, right? And as he looks at it, he's enamored with every facet of this diamond. That's what Christ has been for us. For us, as we've looked at him through, through, through the prism, through the lens of the book of Colossians. And not only have we had the opportunity to gaze upon the beauty of Christ in all of his supremacy, but we've gotten to explore what that means for us as his people. What does that mean for us to have a Christ who is supreme over all things. And we've, we've gotten to explore that, to explore what that looks like on the day-to-day, -day, to explore what that looks like amidst our other various relationships in our lives. So today, then, Paul closes out his letter to the Colossian church with this final description of what it looks like for Christ to be supreme over his church and specifically his servants, his servants, the supremacy of Christ over his servants. Paul demonstrates this by breaking, up, by breaking up these people into three different groups. We're, we're going to look briefly at those who are sent. We're going to look at those who are sending. And then finally, we'll look at those who are served as we work our way through our passage. Today, we're in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Otherwise, we'll have it up on the screen. Again, that's Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. This is the final passage in the book of Colossians. And we'll read it together. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, 
And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you speak to us this morning, that you have a message for us about your grand plan of how you use your church to accomplish your purposes. Father, I thank you for that. Lord, please just guide us as we look at the text this morning. Please help us to see the beauty and the majesty of your son in it. Father, please convict our hearts with the truths in this passage, Lord, so that we would go out and seek to live lives that are changed by the power of your spirit. Lord, please work powerfully as we look at this passage. We pray all this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. So Paul then closes out our letter to the Colossians this morning by noting all of those who have played such a significant and ongoing work in the ministry. So I find it funny because I think many of us, I think when we think of Paul, it's easy to think of him as being this lone ranger Christian who has it all together and is self-sufficient and doesn't really need anyone else. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, right? And here he is. He's writing to the Colossian believers from prison. I mean, surely he must be isolated. But we look at a passage like that and we see that that's not the case with Paul. He's actually still very much dependent upon and rooted in a community even while he's in prison, even while he's doing this work. As you look through the book of Acts, it's amazing. You get, you get the history of the early church, and you get to see Paul on his missionary journeys. And it's amazing to see the team of people that develops around Paul. He is not an isolated figure at all. And he takes this time at the end of Colossians to note some of these people who are continuing to play such a significant role in this ministry. So Paul begins our section then with these, with these, who, are, these who are sent, two letter courier, couriers in particular, Tychicus and Onesimus. They would have been the ones who would have hand-delivered the book of Colossians to the Colossian believers. Now, this wasn't, like, this wasn't like sending mail today, right? Most of us do a lot of our mail through email, so it's easy. I just, in fact, in fact, it's so easy that sometimes I make it feel like it's hard. Sometimes it's incredibly hard for me just to sit down and to even write an email, even though it's so incredibly easy to do. And yet, here in the ancient world, everything that they had to go through to send this letter off. So, so this book, this letter was probably written by Paul during one of his imprisonments in Rome. 
All right, so, so, so imagine Rome in Italy, and this would have made it all the way to Colossae, which would have been about 100 or so miles off the coast of um, uh, inner Turkey. So all in all, we're talking around 1,300 miles, depending on the course that you take. That's if you go through Greece. If you sail down and around, it's even further. So this is an incredibly treacherous journey. This is a little bit different from me hitting send on my, uh, on my Gmail, or me even just braving the, uh, the icy conditions and taking a letter out to my mailbox, right? This is what Paul had to go through in order to send a letter. So he had to choose capable people, capable, dependable people that he knew would be faithful. So our first messenger that we have is Tychicus. Tychicus appears in many other places, actually, throughout the New Testament. He's mentioned in the book of Acts as being one of the regular traveling companions for Paul, um, who accompany him on many of his missionary journeys. On top of that, he's mentioned in the letter to, Tit to Titus, and he's mentioned again at the end of Paul's life in his final letter in 2 Timothy. So Tychicus is someone who has a very faithful, long ministry with Paul. Paul would have known him well. Right? This is someone who is in the trenches of ministry with Paul, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, in the midst of shipwrecks, in the midst of, of all the various things that he faced. So it's not at all surprising that we see in verse 7, Paul referring to him as a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Tychicus has been faithful through the years. And Paul sends him not just to deliver this letter, but according to verse 8, verse 8 we see two things. He, he sends him to tell the Colossian church about how Paul is doing. Because here Paul is in the midst of his imprisonment. He's gone through trials. He's gone through struggles. So Tychicus, who's been able to see this, will now be able to tell the Colossian believers how things are actually continuing on with Paul. But the second, the second function is to encourage their hearts. Tychicus is going to encourage their hearts. Now, this might not be all that obvious unless you're familiar with, uh, with the historical background of these letter carriers. But one of the reasons why this role in particular was so important is because the messenger served as a sort of a preacher, the expectation is that the messenger would arrive with this letter and the messenger would go to the congregation and read this letter in front of the congregation. And not only that, but the letter, the, the, the letter reader, the courier, the, um, the delivery guy, he would also explain it as he went. He would explain it and he would apply it to them very much like what we do today in preaching. Right? This was the expectation of Tychicus. So Tychicus had to, or the letter carrier, whoever it was, had to be familiar with both the contents of the letter, but they also had to be familiar with the author of the letter so that they could give some explanation. So when questions came up, like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. What did Paul mean when he said that? The expectation is that the messenger would be able to tell them what Paul meant when he said that and then be able to give them some application for it. And on top of that, the author then also had to have a huge amount of trust that this person would communicate faithfully what the writer actually intended to say. Tychicus, Tychicus so, so Tychicus would have been the first preacher of the book of Colossians in history. And Tychicus was expected to encourage the Colossians by sharing with them all the truths that we've been looking at 
over the past few months in the book of Colossians. That the Colossian believers would have the opportunity to gaze, to also gaze upon the beauty of Christ and all of his supremacy over all things. That their hearts would be encouraged by these realities, that Christ sits upon his throne. These things were, these things were expected to encourage the Colossian believers. And Tychicus was also accompanied by Onesimus. Onesimus is another, is another figure that we see other places in Scripture, specifically in the letter to Philemon, another letter written by Paul. So uh, there we see, the, in fact, Onesimus is actually the main topic of discussion in the letter to Philemon. Now, we don't know all of the details and the background behind that letter, but Onesimus apparently was a slave who had had a falling out with his Christian master, Philemon. And then, and then somehow in Paul's ministry, in the wake of Paul's ministry, Onesimus actually becomes a believer himself. He's from Colossae. He goes, he has interactions with Paul, and he actually becomes a Christian in the midst of this. So we learn from the letter of Philemon one of the reasons why, why Onesimus is actually returning to Colossae. He's bringing this letter, but he's also going to reconcile with his master, with his master Philemon. So it's a really significant thing that you get to see play out in the letter to Philemon. So uh, the name Onesimus actually was a very common slave name. It actually literally means useful which you can see why that was a common slave name for them back, back at that point in time. So, uh, so even, though, even though he hadn't been a Christian convert for very long, even already at this point in time, he had earned significant trust with Paul and now was going to give himself back over potentially into slavery. Uh, they were waiting to see what Philemon's response would be. But that's, that's one of the reasons why he's accompanying Tychicus then on this journey. So Paul has sent these two out to update the Colossian believers on, on, on the situation with Paul and to share this letter and to share God's word with them. They were missionaries going out to strengthen the Colossians with the gospel. Now, again, I don't, I, I don't know what your mail person is like. I, I, I don't know about the person who delivers your mail. Mine is phenomenal. It's not uncommon for her to come to put mail in our mailbox if we're outside. She'll stop. She'll have conversation with us. We try to get her gifts for different times of the year. She's an incredible person. At no point in time, though, has she ever walked up to me with my electric bill, ripped it open, and began, and began to read it to me, and then explain. That would, be, that would actually be helpful sometimes. But at no point in time has she attempted to do that. But that's exactly what Tychicus and Onesimus are being commissioned to do. They're being commissioned to show up here in Colossae and to read this letter before the Colossian congregation explaining what exactly it is Paul has in mind. What, what realities, what realities are they expected, are they expected to live out? What is life supposed to look like now with Christ as supreme over all things? And interestingly, this is exactly what Pastor Jason does when he's up here from week to week, right? On Sunday mornings, this is what he does. He comes and he opens this up and he looks at letters that are actually addressed to each of you and helps to walk you through them and to explain them and to apply them. That's, that's what I'm attempting to do this morning. That's If you were to go to our children's ministry, to the various classrooms there, 
you would see our volunteers teaching in a very similar fashion, opening up God's word and attempting to explain. If you were to go to, if you were to, go to the youth ministry, you would see a very similar situation. If you were to go to, to our ABFs this morning, our adult Bible fellowships, if you were to visit our small groups during the week, if you were to visit any of these areas, you would see something very similar. And why is that? Well, it's because Lakes Free is committed to God's word. Lakes Free is committed to God's word and to sharing God's word and to teaching God's word and to seeing God's people transformed by God's word because we believe at the very foundation that we need to hear from our God. We need to hear from him. He has a message for us and he promises that that message, his words, will change us, will bring transformation. And we desperately need that. So you'll see that in all areas of Lakes Free Church. We are committed to the word because we know that there's power in God's word. But Paul didn't only need missionary goers, right? This, this, isn't, this isn't only about those who are sent. He also needed senders, senders. And they weren't any less important to God's kingdom purposes. We have a long list of people who stayed in Rome with Paul, who sent along their greetings to the Colossian church. And many of these people also appeared in many other places throughout the New Testament. For instance, the first, in verse 10, we have Aristarchus listed. Aristarchus, like Paul, was a regular traveling companion of Paul in the book of Acts. In fact, there's a possibility, um, here, here Paul refers to him as a fellow prisoner. It's very possible that that's literal and that Aristarchus is actually in prison with Paul right now. So, so Paul isn't the only one facing persecution. Paul isn't the only one facing imprisonment. His other companions are as well. Paul next mentions a figure that might be a little bit surprising if you're familiar with his backstory. He mentions Mark. Now, this is the same Mark that's pretty well known for writing the Gospel of Mark, which I presume many of you have heard of. Maybe not all of you are familiar with, with some of the things that happens in the Gospel of Mark around the historical figure of Mark. So, Garden of Gethsemane, Mark is well known for running away naked, right? As the soldiers come in, as the soldiers come in to take Jesus away, so one of the soldiers grabs Mark by his clothing, and Mark is so scared that he ditches his, his robe and runs off naked, according to Mark's own description. He runs off naked. So that, that's not the last that we see of Mark, though. It's interesting. In the, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, Mark, is, well, Mark is well known in the early church. I mean, the guy runs away naked. I guess you get, you, get, you get a reputation pretty quickly. But it's not the only time that Mark runs away. Also, in Paul's early missionary journeys, he's one of the traveling companions of Barnabas, who we see here as his cousin, a traveling companion of Barnabas and a traveling companion of Paul. And something happens during their first missionary journey and Mark runs away again. And it was such an unfortunate situation that Paul actually refuses to go out on, uh, on subsequent missionary journeys with Mark, right? It was such a negative situation that apparently the falling out was significant enough that he didn't want to go out with him. Now, we can see later from incidents like, from, uh, from texts like here, and then we'll see also later on in 2 Timothy, 
that apparently there is reconciliation between Mark and Paul as their, uh, as their ministry and as their history continues to the degree that once we get to 2 Timothy, probably the last letter that Paul ever wrote towards the end of his life, um, Paul actually seems to show a great deal of affinity for Mark and for his ministry. So there is reconciliation that happens here. Now, here in our letter, it, it mentions that there were instructions that the Colossians had received concerning Mark, and we don't necessarily know what those are, but we can see that at least Mark is sending along his greeting, and there appears to be a great deal of reconciliation that has already happened, and everything seems quite positive. The next companion that Paul mentions is, is maybe also a little bit surprising. It's Jesus, which for some of you might be a little confusing. Like, wait, I, what's, is, didn't he die, rise, and then... Well, so, so Jesus is actually a common first century name, right? Jesus is actually just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, or as we would say it in modern English, Joshua. And just like the name Joshua is a fairly common name, the name Jesus was also a fairly common name in the ancient world. So there were other Jesuses, which then is interesting that Jesus preferred to be known as Justice. Justice, probably, probably so as, so as to not create any confusion, I would imagine, though we don't know for sure. Paul notes in verse 11 that these three men are the only men of the circumcision, or that means the only Jewish men who are currently supporting Paul in this kingdom work. But Paul also notes in verse 12 that there are Gentiles who are now contributing. So Paul gives us the first three senders, but that's not all. There are many Gentiles Right? In the early Christianity, the majority of the Christian church were Jewish believers, Jewish uh, Jews who had turned and confessed faith in the Messiah, in the Christ, in Jesus. But as time went on, more and more Gentiles were enveloped into their community. Um, and so we see that playing out even in this letter. So, for instance, the first one that Paul mentions is Epaphras. Epaphras. Now, he would have been well known to the Colossians. In fact, he's already been mentioned in our sermon series back in chapter one. Epaphras is the one who actually plants the Colossian church. Paul himself had never actually been to, to Colossae. He hadn't been there. He wasn't the one who planted their church. Apparently, it was Epaphras, and Epaphras was their first servant. And so here Epaphras is. Epaphras, um, Epaphras and the Colossian church had faced issues, and so Epaphras had gone to see Paul about this and was now serving with Paul and ministering to his knees, needs. But even in the midst of this, even while he's with Paul, his feelings for the Colossian church, his care for the Colossian church didn't cool at all. Epaphras had a white-hot passion for what was happening in the Colossian church. Um, it says here, it says here in verse, uh, in verse 12, um, he struggled on their behalf in, their, in his prayers. He struggled on their behalf. Now, it's interesting, that word for struggle there, that, that's the Greek word agonizo. Agonizo, maybe you'd recognize, is where we get the word agonize from. It's where, it's where our word agonize come from, comes from. And it was a word that would typically be used in like sporting context or military sorts of context. So, so when we're talking about agonizing, struggling in prayer, 
I think that background helps to bring out some of the nuances. This isn't a light, flippant prayer that you throw up into the sky. This isn't a two-second sort of prayer. This is an agonizing prayer, right? As an aside, as an aside, if people were to comment on your prayer life, would they say that you agonize in prayer? Isn't that an amazing description? I, I, I would love for my wife and my kids someday to be able to say that they saw me agonizing in prayer. I don't know that they could, though, to be honest. I pray, yes, but agonizing in prayer. What a beautiful description that I think we should all, that we should all be seeking, that we can be those who agonize in prayer for others. That's an amazing thing. My kids might, might say that my prayers are agonizing, but I don't know that they would say that I agonize in my prayers. Paul quickly mentions two other Gentile names. He mentions Luke and he mentions Demas. Luke is, uh, again, well-known, just like Mark. Many of you would be familiar with the gospel of Luke. This is the same Luke. Not only, not only did he write the gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts as well. Um, he also was a regular traveling companion with Paul, a regular mi uh, missionary along with him, so they got to know each other incredibly well. So it's not surprising to see him here, and we see that he's a physician. Um, maybe, maybe Paul is mentioning that in this context just to, just to give the Colossians some assurance that even his physical needs are being taken care of in case there was any sickness or in case there was anything going on. And then Demas, who, who isn't mentioned uh, many other places in the New Testament, but is likely also the same Demas who's mentioned in 2 Timothy, which, which very unfortunately, Paul notes there that Demas had punted the faith. He had deserted Paul due to his love for the world, which might be startling for some of you to think that's, that there were those who were ministering with, with Paul, who were in his context, who were so deeply devoted to the gospel, only to find out later that they were actually more in love with the world than they were the gospel itself. For all of you out there crushed under the weight of friends and family who have potentially rejected the faith or who have walked away, know that this experience was all too common for Paul as well. Not just your experience, many others have experienced it. Even Paul, even those who were deeply connected to him, he saw people leave the faith. So Tychicus and Onesimus then were not alone in their venture to share God's word with the Colossians. They were sent to this group, of, uh, to this group deeply committed to seeing God's word impact the Colossian church. And they were buoyed by agonized prayers right? Agonized prayers that the word would have its full effect and full impact and bring them, according to verse 12, to stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Again, just like we saw with Paul, this missionary venture was not a lone ranger task. It was a task that was dependent upon an entire, an entire community, both those who were going, but then also those who were sent, who are the, those who were going, but also those who were sending. We needed both groups for this mission, for this missionary journey, and it's the same way today. 
We need goers and we need senders, but we're all committed to the task, the missionary task, the missionary zeal of seeing Christ's name taken to the ends of the world. But Paul wasn't done there either. Paul now sets his sights on those who are being served, those who are the recipients of this service, of this going and of this sending. Paul sends a greeting to Colossae and Laodicea. Laodicea was a neighboring city, a larger city to Colossae, um, which also had believers in it. Paul singles out a greeting to Nympha. Um, she, she, would have been, uh, she was a believer. She was a believer in Laodicea who had a number of believers gathering in her home, a congregation of believers. And then Paul provides some specific instructions for the Colossian church. They needed to be sure once they benefited from Paul's letter, the letter that we've been looking at, that it got passed along to the Laodiceans. The Colossians needed to share God's word. And apparently, we don't have any record of it, but apparently a letter had also been sent to Laodicea, which the Colossian church should take and read as well. Now, Remember, remember what we said previously about how letters were passed and how letters were shared. The expectation is not that the Colossians would take this letter and go over to Laodicea and hand it to them and then go back home, in the, right? The, this, this wouldn't have just been slipped into their mailbox and then, and then they would have gone back. The expectation is that the Colossian believers, who at this point in time had ha- benefited from the preaching of Tychicus, who had learned the letter to the Colossians, that they would have taken that letter to Laodicea and that they would have shared it with them in the exact same way. The expectation is that they would go and that they would read the letter to the Colossians and they would explain the letter to the Colossians and that they would apply the letter to the Colossians. That's the expectation about how this was to be shared with that neighboring city. And likewise, the Laodiceans would have shared the letter to Laodicea in a very similar fashion. They would have brought it to them. They would have shared it with them. They would have unpacked it for them. This was the expectation about how God's word was to continue to spread. And the Colossians are left with one last exhortation to encourage Archippus, who is also mentioned in Philemon. Now, we don't know much about the ministry of, Ar- uh, uh, of Archippus, um, what he has been commissioned to do. He's called in Philemon. He's called a fellow soldier, a fellow soldier of Paul. And we don't really know for sure what that means, but it's possible, it's possible that maybe he was a pastor to the Colossian church as well. But whatever it was, the whole community was expected to play a role in encouraging him to finish that commission that he had received. So both of these final two examples then point to a reality that the Colossian church, in fact, no church was intended to, was supposed to be, was intended to be merely recipients of the ministry of others. Paul and his network of ministry partners, both goers and senders, were pouring into the Colossians so that they could in turn pour into other believers. It was never meant to just stay with them. They were always meant to pour out to others. Paul was making disciples who were meant to then go and make more disciples. They were meant to be a community who encouraged one another and shared the word of God. 
not just listened to it themselves, not just studied it themselves. Yes, of course they were supposed to do that. That was expected. That was assumed that they would be pouring over these letters. They would know these letters, that they would be memorizing these letters, that they would be ingesting them and taking them into themselves. That was assumed. But they were also supposed to take that and share it with others. It wasn't just for them. They were all part of a greater missionary work the mission described at the beginning of Colossians of the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. And there are no bystanders in that mission. There's no bleacher sitters. Um, my, my, my daughter, my Sophia, she, she's playing basketball right now. It's her first time to play basketball. And it's so much fun to watch her play, right? She's, uh, she's seventh grade, plays for Chisago Lakes. And I go and I watch these basketball games. And honestly, I'm, just, I'm totally enthralled by it. It's incredibly fun. Um, and I'll be honest, I have no idea what's going on. I don't, I don't understand basketball for life of me. I played rugby in college. I'm like, if someone has the ball, you hit them. Um, I don't understand what's, I don't understand the point system. Sometimes one point, sometimes two, sometimes three. I don't know if the refs are just like guessing, like, I don't know, I'll, I'll give them six points for that one. Um, it, so, so I have no idea what's going on with, with basketball. But it is incredibly fun to watch, to watch them take the ball, to move down court, to try to take it away from each other. To, I mean, the whole thing is just a lot of fun. I've never had so much fun watching basketball before. <laughs> But again, I have no idea what's going on. I'm a bleacher sitter. I'm up there cheering and hooting and hollering, but I'm playing no active role in actually moving the ball down court. Is that how you would say Down the field, towards the goal? I don't know. They'll get a touchdown. Um, I have, uh, right? I'm just a bleacher sitter. I don't know anything about it. But that's not what we're called to in Christ. There are no bleacher sitters. There are no bystanders. We are all called to be on the court moving that ball, moving that ball towards the basketball goal, right? We are all called to that. There's no sitting on the sidelines. We are all part of spreading the truth that Christ reigns supreme and explaining what that means to live in light of that to the world around us. And that's what Colossians has been all about. Two things I just want to highlight. Two things I want to highlight from this book. Number one, the incredible diversity. The incredible diversity that we see at the end in, this closing, in these closing couple of paragraphs. The crazy diversity that we see. Look at the range of people Paul mentions. There, there are people who go and there are people who stay. There are pastors and there are laity. There's males and there's females involved in this. There are those who were previously, or not even just previously, who are slaves involved in this missionary task. There are educated physicians involved. There's ethnic divisions that we see here, right, between the Jews and the Gentiles, and yet they're working together. There are those who have old grudges and failures. There are those who are soon to be separated from the community. I can't imagine a much more diverse group of people than this. And yet, they're united. They're united, and they're working towards something so much greater and something so much more significant. Paul stated earlier in the letter, back in chapter 3, verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And that's what we see playing out. 
That's what we see playing out. They are one group of people committed towards the same cause, the cause of Christ and his beauty and his glory and wanting him to be known and to enjoy it across the entire world, right? That's what they're committed to. And this is what we're called to. We're called to be a diverse congregation of different socioeconomic, ethnic, racial backgrounds together celebrating Christ because he is all and in all, right? We're not, we're not a people who cling only to those who are like me, who have the same background as me and the same interests as me and who always agree with me. That's not what we're striving for. There is something so much more important, something that is so much greater that binds us than our clothing choices. There is something so much greater that we're called to look to. Second, they were all in. Not, and not just each individual was all in. They were all. All of the individuals were all in. And we also are called to be all in. So Paul has given us a letter about Christ's supremacy over all things and what that means for us and for our lives. And then he's closed out this letter with a picture of it, a displayed in the lives of these people. We're called to be a people radically transformed by God's word and prayer, committed to taking his word to our neighbors and to our schools and to our jobs and into our community and to our nation and to the ends of the earth. And there is no room for bleacher sitters in this, right? There, there is no appendix in the body of Christ, right? Everyone serves a role. Everyone serves a function. We all are important. This is significant. So when you're not serving, when you're not with us, when you're not united with us, when you're not on mission, it hurts the entire body, Right? When the ACL is missing, the ACL might feel really unimportant. The ACL might feel like it's not going to be missed by anyone. And yet when it's gone, the whole body collapses. We need each other. We are called to strive together. So if you're feeling like you can't serve, if you're feeling like there are things, there are hurdles that stand in your way, you feel like maybe you're too young, or you feel like you're too old, or you feel like you're too busy, or you feel like you're too ignorant, or you feel like you're too broken, everyone who is in Christ has everything they need. Everyone who's in Christ has everything they need. So what are you doing? Where are you investing? Or better, who are you investing in? Where are your people? And why? Why was this so important? Why was this so important to Paul that he would be in prison? Why was this so important to Tychus that he would agonize in prayers? Why was this so important to Archippus that he would be in prison for this? Why is this so important to each of Why is this so important to Onesimus that he would actually go back to his former master and uh, potentially be put into servitude again and face significant consequences? Why was this so important? Because Christ... Because Christ is that beautiful. Because Christ in all that he has accomplished. Because Christ in his death and his resurrection. Because Christ sits on the throne. Because Christ is supreme and preeminent over all things. That's why. Because he's that worth it. And so Paul closes out the letter to, to Colossians with verse 18. 
He writes this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. But as typical of Paul, he's not really saying here the end. Really what he's saying here is to be continued. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I pray, I pray, God, that we would each find your son so beautiful and so amazing and so spectacular and so glorious. Father, that our hearts would be moved to serve, to be servants of your son, to be servants of his beauty, that we would long to share these truths, these spectacular truths with others, to invest in others to be those who are involved in the great task of raising up disciples in your name. Father, please guide us, please move us, please shape us. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this closing song. Sing, you give life. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. the earth and all the earth will shout
Our benediction comes out of Lou, it comes out of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and have a good Sunday. Hey friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.